Hello, everyone. I'm Brian Zimmerman with Becker's Healthcare. Thank you for tuning into the Becker's Healthcare podcast series. Today, we're thrilled to be joined by Dr. Jack Ziegler, a board-certified and fellowship-trained orthopedic spine surgeon and co-director of the Center for Disc Replacement at the Texas Back Institute in Plano. Dr. Ziegler, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Brian. So let's dive in here. To begin, Dr. Ziegler, I'm wondering if you could tell us about yourself and perhaps share why you chose to become involved as an early investigator of motion preservation in the lumbar spine. Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, Brian, I was trained as a, an orthopedic surgeon who then did um, an extra year fine. So when I went into practice, both uh, clinical and academic practice, uh, I was taking care of uh, patients who had uh, back pain issues. And unfortunately, most of them got better with uh, non-operative treatment, but there were always some patients who ultimately um, needed surgery in order to get back the quality of life that they wanted. And uh, in my early years in practice, a lot of times that led to fusion for painful or unstable disc segments. And uh, it was always an operation I sort of dreaded because it meant changing the mechanics of the spine and also uh, damaging some healthy muscle and, and other tissues to get to the spine. We didn't have some of the minimally invasive techniques then that we have now. So it was kind of a destructive operation. Um, and because it changed the mechanics of the spine, uh, people never really recovered and they had to have uh, other surgeries uh, further down the line. So, uh, you know, I recognize the potential for some improvement in that area, like like hip and knee replacements, you know, which had replaced hip and knee fusions and uh, were and still are some of the most successful orthopedic procedures that are, are done. Um, but, uh, you know, I also recognized in the middle of my career as disc replacement uh, started to become a topic of conversation that it needed to be done in a, in a very scientific fashion. So um, in year 2000 and 2001, when I had the opportunity with some of my partners at Texas Back Institute to participate in the very early FDA studies, uh, we were really happy to do that because we knew that there would be a scientific framework that surrounded um, the investigation of these devices. And that's really been the high point of my career, um, being able to be at the very beginning of this FDA process, uh, participate in, in taking care of patients and doing a scientific study at the same time. And now we have the opportunity to look back uh, on 20 years of progress in uh, disc replacement because we were some of the early pioneers. So it's just been a really uh, a tremendous part of my career. Yeah, really, really appreciate you sharing that background, just giving listeners the, the context for the conversation we're, we're about to dive into. And, and your rationale for getting excited about motion preservation in the lumbar spine it really was made clear in, in your answer. But I guess the, the clarifying question I want to ask is, are lumbar artificial discs still considered experimental? I mean, when did they start being used? Any, any added clarity you can you can share on that? Sure. The, the modern lumbar um, artificial disc technology uh, really started development in Europe in the mid-1980s um, with a uh, very bright uh, orthopedic spine surgeon in Germany and another one very independently in France who came up with the idea for uh, two um, motion preservation implants for lumbar discs. And those were um, implanted in Europe in smaller numbers and modified a little bit, but ultimately when it came to the U.S. experience, 
the FDA got involved because these were considered novel technology, which is the FDA's definition of a device that cannot be easily uh, compared to a device that's already on the market. So um, in order to release these or approve them for commercial use in, in the United States, the FDA required each of the sponsors of this technology to begin scientific studies, which were multi-center, prospective, randomized control trials. So it's a big mouthful, but basically it means that it involves lots of different centers and lots of different surgeons and lots of different patients so that you can generalize the result and that these patients would be enrolled and then followed prospectively over the years that they had their surgery and then beyond so that the information could be um, examined really in a scientific way. And there were control studies. So the patients were randomly assigned to get either the new artificial disc technology or a fusion, which was the standard of care at the time. And they, that would make the results uh, comparable because the only variable in this, these big groups of patients was which implant they got. So this was all done in a, uh, in a very scientific way, not a way that's really done elsewhere in the world. So the US FDA is really kind of unique in doing that. So those studies started in the US in year 2000 with one of the discs and 2001 with a second disc um, and uh, continued. There were several other discs that never made it through. They were in the pipeline. And the only um, other disc that's been uh, FDA approved and is commercially available now is the ActiveL disc. So the neat thing about these studies, Brian, is that there were very clear criterion for enrollment. So it was very specific um, which patients uh, we could enroll in the study. They had an age criteria. They had to have a certain amount of conservative care that they had failed. They had to have a certain amount of pain, certain amount of um, impairment and disability. And once those patients were identified, they were randomly assigned, not by the surgeons, but externally by a uh, an accounting type uh, situation to receive one or the other. And then they were all followed in the exact careful and meticulous way for two years, five years, seven years, and even beyond. Um, it was really the two-year data that the FDA evaluated, and it was based on that two-year data that they decided uh, to allow commercial use, meaning allowed the companies to um, to sell them to, to hospitals so that surgeons could implant them in patients. So this started in year 2000. The FDA approval for the earliest devices was in 2004 and 2006. And then the ActiveL about nine years later, because it started um, several years later, the first two um, discs that were approved were randomized to fusions. By the time the ActiveL started, both of those discs were already FDA approved. So the ActiveL was actually randomized to either of those two artificial discs. It was one of the first major disc versus disc studies instead of a disc versus fusion study. So, you know, with data collected in such a clear fashion and hundreds of, of scientific peer-reviewed publications now um, in the public domain as uh, based on all of this data, it's really hard to imagine why anyone could say that they're still experimental. Um, disappointingly, so some of the major insurance companies um, can 
still consider them experimental. Some of them have just recently changed their, their definitions, but these are their internal definitions. I think anyone uh, who is reasonable looking at the amount of information that's been amassed and looking at the tens, if not hundreds of thousands of patients worldwide who have lumbar artificial discs in um, would, would not really be comfortable saying that they're experimental. So Fortunately, uh, the internet has made a lot of that data accessible to everyone, including um, many of our patients uh, who have been able to challenge their surgeons, who, who tell them that they have to have a fusion, who are able to ask very uh, probing questions of their surgeons. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's uh, even give them access to other patients who have had that kind of surgery so they can make a much more educated decision. But um, it, there's no way that anyone reasonable would still consider this experimental. Very much appreciate you uh, diving into some of that and, and especially sharing some of those details about those early studies. And, and of course, uh, as you sort of laid out, there's, there's a wealth of information out there um, about artificial discs now. But, but I'm wondering if we can zero in here a little bit, just go a little bit deeper. So, uh, Dr. Ziegler, can you talk more about sort of the type of scientific evidence that really makes you feel very comfortable, obviously, uh, recommending artificial disc replacement to your patients? Yeah, I'd be, I'd be happy to. Uh, the, the information that we have um, generated uh, on these scientific studies for the last uh, 22 years is much stronger than for any other implant that we put in the body routinely. So there's much higher quality scientific evidence now for lumbar disc replacement than there is for hip replacements or knee replacements or even non-orthopedic devices like um, uh, lenses for cataracts or pacemakers. Uh, all these things are implanted all the time and they don't have the same detailed type of scientific study um, that the FDA required for, for lumbar disc replacements. There is so much of this published data now available that we were even able to do what's called a meta-analysis. So we were able to take these multi-center studies and pool all the base data together and then subject it to even more intense um, levels of statistical analysis. So there are meta-analysis available now that combine five of the U.S. FDA studies of lumbar disc replacement, including some of the discs that didn't um, pass through the FDA. And there's even an outside U.S. There's a British uh, study that did the same thing, mimicking an FDA study where they collected patients, they prospectively randomized them in multiple centers within Sweden, and then followed them for five years. So we have these six very large studies where we've been able to pool the data. And looking at five-year results from all of those studies together, all of the patients who were assigned to receive disc replacements instead of fusions did better. Uh, they did better in their pain management. They did better in their ability to uh, return to activities. They did better in their range of motion. They were more satisfied. And most importantly, they had a 50% reduction in needing additional surgery within five years. So we've got this um, really very strong evidence that if someone has a choice between a fusion and a disc replacement, the, the, disc replacement makes a lot more sense, if for nothing else, other than the, the decrease in the need for additional surgery, but it also gives you better outcomes. 
The other thing that um, impresses me or impressed me is the, um, the, the oversight, the layers of oversight in an FDA study. Um, so the data is really carefully protected and scrutinized at every single level. There's very little opportunity for anyone to, to play with that data. There are uh, monitors and, and uh, visits by the FDA and ultimately all that um, data is very carefully analyzed. A lot of it is not uh, just the surgeon's interpretation, but a lot of it is uh, patient-derived, where the patients fill out the same forms every single time. Though all the x-rays are digitized and sent down to an independent radiologist uh, group who has software algorithms that analyze all that data and can measure ranges of motion and um, issues with the implant. So all that stuff is, is outside of the surgeon's purview and only comes together at the very end when all the data is analyzed. So we have this you know, two-year data, which the FDA um, looked at and, and said, yes, these discs are no worse than uh, fusions and in fact, better than, so go ahead and you can start to use it. We have published five-year data worldwide that shows how strong it is. Uh, Activel uh, just recently had its seven-year outcomes data published following that same cohort of patients now through seven years. So, uh, you know, we have just so much evidence and, and then it comes back to me because primarily I'm a clinician. I take care of patients. That's my, my primary job. And I get to see my patients coming back, you know, 15 and 20 years later, bringing a family member or coming in with another issue, you know, having neck pain. And, you know, I kind of ask them, well, I haven't seen you in a long time. How's your, your lower back? And, uh, you know, we have not had um, any significant issues with our long-term patients. We've not had to do additional level surgeries. And the answer most patients give me is I almost forgot that I had it. Uh, so it's really rewarding to me on an individual level, but certainly participating in collecting all this massive uh, data and um, being able to publish it and being able to speak about it at scientific meetings um, has made me much, much more comfortable when I sit down with a patient and recommend an artificial disc to them. Well, Dr. Ziegler, we, we covered a lot of ground in, in, in a pretty quick amount of time, but I, I want to close here by just maybe looking ahead. So how do you think that lumbar disc replacement will evolve in, in the future? Will its use expand? What, what, what's on the horizon here? I think that lumbar disc replacement is going to um, be more uh, generally used as time goes on. I think that uh, the, the payers of the future, whoever they are, whether it's a single payer in the government or whether it's a consolidation of insurance companies or uh, whether it's hospital systems, whoever is controlling the healthcare dollar is ultimately going to see that um, a significant decrease in the need for uh, expensive spinal reoperations is in the public good. Um, you know, reoperation is one of the largest drivers of healthcare economics. So by cutting down the necessity for additional surgery with the data that we've been able to generate, I think it's going to be a no-brainer for the, the powers who are controlling the healthcare dollar uh, to recommend disc replacement um, over fusion. So I think in the future, there's going to be even a bigger role for uh, disc replacement than um, we've seen before. And lastly, I think they're going to be evolutionary designs in implant designs, in material science, in instrumentation. So I think the discs of the future will be even better than the ones uh, we have available for us today. 
uh, but we're getting great results and great outcomes, even with the, the very early uh, models that we've, uh, we've been using through our FDA study and beyond. So I think the future is really good for this technology and it's being proven by science, not just by a cheerleader. You know, uh, it, it is uh, a very strong evidence that shows that this is the appropriate thing for a patient who has the, the choice between a fusion and a disc replacement. And as patients become more educated, I think they will continue asking that question, why do I have to have a fusion? Well, Dr. Sigler, it's been a pleasure hearing about this. I think you have a, such a unique and fascinating perspective on this and your work in, on the research arm, understand the data, and also as a clinician. So um, we greatly appreciate you taking the time today. Well, thank you very much for uh, the opportunity. And uh, I'm passionate about this, but um, I live this because this is uh, my job. You know, I take care of patients and try to um, help them make their lives better. So this is a tool that's been um, really uh, successful in, in my experience. So thank you again for this opportunity. Absolutely. I also want to thank our podcast sponsor, SQF Implant Systems, for this engaging content today. You can tune into more podcasts from Becker's Healthcare by visiting our podcast page at beckershospitalreview.com.